as I just mentioned, as we pick up this morning's passage, uh, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. He's just He's just shared the Passover with his disciples, the last in a long line of Passover meals, looking forward in anticipation of a future hope, as Jesus would soon prove to be the fulfillment of those types and shadows, the true Passover lamb, innocent without blemish or spot, soon to be slain that the angel of death might pass over us. A meal not only looking back to the redemptive work of God in the story of the Exodus, but two, looking ahead to the redemptive work of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And with that, the institution of the Lord's Supper, going back to last week, the inauguration of the new covenant, the breaking of bread in that sacred moment, symbolic of the body of Jesus that would soon be broken, the cup, symbolic of the blood that he would soon pour out at Mount Calvary. The plan of disloyalty and and treachery now put into motion. Judas having negotiated the terms of the greatest kiss of betrayal the world has ever known. If you pick up the story in verse 24 of chapter 22, Luke tells us, And a dispute also arose among them, that is Jesus' disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It almost comes across as humorous, except that it's kind of sad. They've just participated, the disciples have, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. That just happened. Remember, Jesus has just told them that one of, one of them would betray him, prompting them to question one another as to which of them it could be, verse 23, which they not only take as an opportunity to, to argue over which of them is the vilest, He who would soon willfully betray the Son of God, but which of them is the greatest? Which is actually not the first time that the disciples have had this very argument about their place in the pecking order, so to speak. If you look at going back to chapter 9, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Almost verbatim. It's really sobering, isn't it? When we sing those words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why would Luke include two accounts of the disciples arguing about which of them is the greatest? It's because we have that propensity. We have to come back around and be reminded yet again, oftentimes over and over again. And it's the kindness of the Lord that he wouldn't look at us and go, didn't you figure that one out back in chapter 9? In that earlier instance, the argument having come right after the disciples had failed to cast a a demon out of a young boy, you may remember, due to their little faith and their lack of prayer. And with that, Jesus addressing their faithlessness. In their minds, a good time to argue about which of them was the greatest. Failing at that point in the story to grasp the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last which prompted Jesus back in chapter 9 to take a child, a small child, and put him by his side. A visible display of what it means to receive and enter the kingdom in helplessness and humility and complete dependence and wholehearted trust. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God? It means childlike faith, humble dependence, and trust in Jesus. In the words of one scholar, Every child born into the world is absolutely, completely, totally, actually helpless. And so it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. 
We sing it often. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked like a baby, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Children representing the, the smallest and most powerless in society. John the Baptist, you may recall, he had prophesied the one who would level the mountains of religious pride and who would lift up the valleys of the poor in spirit. In chapter 9, when the disciples had this argument, Jesus offered a picture of what true greatness is in response to the silly dispute that they were having at at the time, inviting them to posture themselves in humility and childlike faith. Here in chapter 22, we're left to wonder if there's been any progress at all on the road to discipleship. As Jesus' closest disciples yet again find themselves arguing about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And if we're honest, we can surely relate to that, can't we? I know I can. There's a part of us that that wants wants to know how great we are. Or wants people to know how great we are, I should say. Even more specifically, to be admired, to be applauded for our intelligence, our athleticism, our business acumen, whatever it might be. What we refer to in the language of our church as functional sources of righteousness. Things that we trust in to build our reputation and give us a sense of worth and value. Even in the church. We want people to recognize the value of our ministry. We want to be seen for the things that we're, that we're doing to advance the kingdom. We want to be, people to be impressed with it. Our proneness to wander down those paths of, of longing, a humbling reminder that there's still sanctifying work to be done in, in each and every one of our lives. Which makes it all the more mind-boggling that Jesus would go on to say in verse 25... To the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. I say mind-boggling because Jesus, in in just a few moments, is, is about to declare that the disciples will sit on thrones someday. But before he gets there, he, he unpacks this notion of servant-hearted humility. Right? Greatness was defined among the, the Gentiles as it is by many in our very own day. The greatest in society being those with the most wealth, the most prestige, the most power. That's why kings were considered the greatest. They possessed everything. They lacked nothing. All the while crediting themselves with titles like benefactor or your grace. And acting as the the source of earthly blessing for those under their rule and reign. It's the world's definition of greatness. Jesus says to his disciples, but not so with you. Here declaring the upside down nature of the kingdom yet again. Back in chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus had said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. To making that that very same declaration Jesus had with his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Chapter 18, verse 14, where he proclaimed, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, repetition in Luke's gospel account. 
It was the the self-righteous Pharisee in that parable in chapter 18 whose prayers went unheard, blinded by his own self-sufficiency and pride, while the sinful tax collector was justified before God in humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. A sobering reminder, and I've said this before in this, this series, this walk through the book of Luke, that there are many who believe themselves to be on the inside who desperately need to be won to Jesus Christ. There are many in the church who have never truly come to the end of themselves, who have never truly come face to face with the hopelessness of their sinful condition, who have stayed just busy enough with church activity and have had just enough people see that activity and speak into it with words of encouragement that that perceived greatness is all the more present in their lives and they've missed out on Jesus in the midst of it all. Going back to the mission statement of Jesus in chapter 5, those who are well, Jesus said at that point in the story, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That mercy is for the self-abandoning. Those desperate for cleansing, for healing, for forgiveness. The poor in spirit. In the words of one scholar, the, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Going all the way back to Mary's song of praise in chapter 1. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. If we would know the abundance of God's mercy, we must admit the poverty of our lives. Certainly a challenge in this world which props up uh, those with wealth and prestige and power to be imitated and envied. So that would ask, I think Jesus would want us to ask this question. I think Luke would want us to wrestle with this question. Have you truly been brought to the end of yourself? So wrecked by your sin that all you could do is cry out to God for mercy. What a miracle it is when God brings proud self-sufficient, morally upright people to the end of themselves. It's that kind of wondrous miracle of God's sovereign grace for which we in our, in our own affluency and perceived greatness are most desperate, that we might believe on Jesus, that we might repent of our sins and trust in him, that we might know true freedom, true healing, true peace and joy that comes in setting aside that empty chase as we talked about when we worked through the book of Ecclesiastes. That grasping at smoke. It's fleeting. Here Jesus declares that true greatness is found in servant-hearted humility born out of the ashes of a self-abandoning recognition of one's poverty of spirit and desperate need for God's mercy. He goes on in verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. True greatness found in servant-hearted humility, which we see most beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ. This is not surprising new information for most of us in this room. The suffering servant of whom Isaiah prophesied who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. 
the gospel revealing to us the heart of God, the servant-hearted humility of God. A God willing to stoop down into the arrogant slums of human history. Consider this, that he might live a perfect life of humility in our place. A God willing to die the most humiliating of deaths in the public square, as we'll see soon enough, that he might bear the sins of our pride in his body on the tree. Counted proud, so that we the proud might be counted humble. We guard against the, the kind of danger of which Jesus warns his disciples by fixing our eyes on the suffering servant and son of God. As the Apostle Paul would go on to say famously in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There, there's the servant-heartedness and the humility that, that Jesus is going after in this morning's passage. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, Paul says, but also to the interests of others. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul goes on to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Servant-hearted humility that looks to the interests of others. A mark of true greatness in the eyes of God. Taking deeper root in our hearts, Paul says, as we fix our eyes on the one who hum humbly and selflessly gave himself as a ransom for us. Transformed as we behold, as Paul would say elsewhere in one of his letters to the church in Corinth. He goes on in verse 28 of this morning's passage. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here, here Jesus makes an astounding statement. One that would be absolutely ridiculous if it weren't true. As he refers to the heavenly banqueting table as my table. And the kingdom of God as my kingdom. A declaration of his kingship and divinity. Remember, Luke has shown us the kingship of Jesus in a number of ways. In his rule and reign over sickness and evil. His authority to forgive sin. His lordship over the fish of the sea, the institution of the Sabbath, and his forming of a new people, the twelve apostles, hearkening back to the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel, the new twelve through whom God would fulfill his redemptive purposes, soon to be sent ones with authority to bear testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus here declaring the promise of the kingdom to the twelve who have stayed with him in his trials. Judas, no longer present in this moment, having left the upper room in preparation for the betrayal to come. Leaving many to believe that the twelfth and, and final throne would belong to Matthias. Acts chapter 1, who would soon be numbered with the eleven apostles as Judas's replacement. Others believing it would belong to the apostle Paul. The self-proclaimed least of the apostles. The last to the table. Regardless, what Jesus says here is pretty, 
incredible when you consider the fact that the disciples would all run away from Jesus that night. And yet, their leaving of their nets wouldn't be forgotten, nor their commitment to Jesus in the formation of the early church. Most of them would give their lives for him. The church today, resting upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, with Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. The apostles, given the privilege of a place and position of rule in the age to come and a seat at the great banqueting table of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, to which we too look forward with great anticipation and hope. This kingdom. But lest the disciples think, and lest we think that we have any hope apart from the mercy and grace of God, listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The the you in verse 31 If you go back to the original Greek, it's actually in the plural form. Meaning that Satan would have gladly brought about the destruction of all of the disciples, multiplying the sorrow of the story of Judas 12 times over. Must have been incredibly sobering to hear in the wake of their silly dispute as to which of them was the greatest. Here referring Jesus does to Peter by his given name, Simon. That too, a reminder of Peter's own human frailty. The candles of Passover beginning to give way to this this darkened silence in the upper room. Judas, the betrayer, not only having gone to finalize the the details of, of his betrayal, but Peter, his denial too now predicted by Jesus. And yet, and yet, Verse 32, piercing through that darkened silence in this moment of seeming hopelessness is the hope of the gospel. As Jesus declares that it's by his own intercession that Peter's faith will not fail. And with Peter, the rest of the disciples, who too would run away again from Jesus that very night. Right? We, we know Jesus would go on to die for Peter, the work of atonement. And we celebrate the atonement. But one of the things we miss out on in terms of Jesus' work, the gospel, is his ministry of intercession. Don't overlook verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That before and after dying for Peter, Jesus prayed for Peter. Saving him too by his intercession. It's the great hope of the book of Hebrews. Some of you are around for that series. And with it, the the hope that our own faith will not fail. Namely, that we have in heaven a resurrected and high priest who ministers for the church in heavenly places. That's where Jesus is right now. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, here it is, always lives to make intercession for them. 
Just dream this morning of what Jesus is speaking over you in prayer right now. He lives to make intercession for you and for me. Just as he interceded for Peter that his faith might not fail. As we oftentimes sing as we gather before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Trusting in our own perceived greatness, clawing after false forms of righteousness, it's an anchor that cannot hold. Praise the Lord that we have an anchor that can. The eternal high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, who lives to make intercession for us. Goes on in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter responds with something of a misplaced confidence. Believing that he would, in fact, have no need to turn again, which is the language of repentance, because he would never turn away from Jesus in the first place. Trusting in his own strength, believing himself to be prepared for any danger. A sobering warning for us all. Right, We're a few years into the discipleship process with Peter. It's a reminder that the longer we're Christians, for some reason, we, we can become more self-reliant, self-confident. Abandoning the poverty of spirit that brought us to the foot of the cross in the first place. We've all known a pride having come before a fall. And if we haven't, we will. A reminder of the foolishness of believing that we're beyond temptation. That we can withstand temptation in our own strength. Peter would would stand firm in the faith in the end and have a significant role. The rock in the leadership and life of the early church. Not because of his own self-confidence and perceived greatness and strength. But because of the intercessory and atoning work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. Verse 35, Jesus goes on to say to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Actually, this is kind of funny timing. Peter says, I know what's coming and I'm ready for it. And Jesus says, let me just flip the instructions around on you, buddy. Hey, you remember back in chapter 9 when I sent you out and I said, take nothing? We're going to do something a little different this time around. You just imagine the disciples going, what, what? We thought we knew the next steps. Seems to be a contradiction. At first glance, that earlier instance, chapter 9 Jesus having had them travel light as they had the provision and protection they needed from those around them. Here encouraging them to be prepared as they won't soon be able to expect others to provide for their needs. Soon to step out into the the wider world. The story of the book of Acts. And with it the, the awaiting persecution and danger. 
Some believing that, that Jesus means for them to defend themselves in the midst of such persecution. Even, even maybe the danger of, of, of things like robbers on the road to spreading the gospel through the use of a literal sword. Verse 36. Though Jesus will go on to rebuke Peter before the night is over for his next silly moment of chopping a man's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. Which is why most scholars believe that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, calling the disciples to be prepared to fight the good fight of faith in the spiritual battle that awaits, that lies ahead. In the words of one pastor and scholar, this is the kind of force that Jesus has in mind. Not the force of physical violence, but the force of spiritual valor. He goes on in closing out this morning's passage, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Right? It seems as, as though the, the disciples are still confused. Or perhaps they aren't willing to embrace what they know to be true. That's a thing too, Right? Sometimes our theology, our doctrine is maybe a, a, a little off. Maybe there's work to be done there. Other times, our theology is good. It just doesn't match what's going on functionally in our hearts. Here, caught up in the clouds, the disciples are. The entirety of their focus on the mention of a sword, all the while failing to consider what Jesus means here. Jesus replies, it is enough, meaning enough of that nonsense. He's just quoted scripture. He's just taken them back to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, declaring himself to be the fulfillment of those very words, soon to be numbered with the transgressors as Jesus would go on to die between two common thieves. And yet Jesus was no common criminal. In fact, he was no criminal at all. Isaiah 53 also declaring these famous words, Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, just like every one of the disciples. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Pierced not for his own transgressions. Crushed not for his own iniquities, unlike those two criminals that he would die between. Now this is the promise of the sinless son of God. Who would bear the sins of his people in his body on the tree, as Peter would go on to write. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Right? This was and is the hope of the earliest of Jesus' disciples. And it's our hope as well. Maybe today is the, the day of salvation for, for someone in this room. The day to know true freedom and joy. The kind of freedom and joy that comes in letting go of that grasping at smoke. Those false forms of righteousness the effort to be perceived as great in the eyes of others. 
Perhaps today is the day to cry out to Jesus in faith for the mercy and forgiveness that can only be found in him. Surely it's a day for all of us to repent of of our own silly notions of self-perceived greatness. I don't know about you, but if I were in the the early days of of Jesus' ministry, like the earliest of his disciples, I think Luke would have included that that silly argument that we see twice in the book of Luke. He would have had to put it in there probably about a hundred times if I were in the story. Maybe that's just me. We're invited this morning to turn again, if not for the first time, from functional sources of righteousness. Posture ourselves yet again in childlike faith, humble dependence, and trust in Jesus. I don't know what it might be for you. It's different for all of us. We have in some of the material that we've written as a church a list of those false forms of righteousness, and they usually involve good things that that we leverage for our own identity in distorted ways. Parenting righteousness. Intellectual righteousness. Theological righteousness. Church work and ministry righteousness. And the list goes on. This morning's passage invites us to fix our eyes on the suffering servant and son of God to see perfect servant-hearted humility personified in Jesus Christ, trusting such a mark of true greatness to take deeper root in our own hearts as we behold the one who would go on to give his life as a ransom for you and me. I pray this morning that you'd see something more of the fullness of the gospel. That, that we, we sum it up in the language of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And yes and amen to that. We need Jesus to march his way to Mount Calvary before this story's over. But the good news of the gospel goes beyond the resurrection to, to the ascension where Jesus now intercedes for you and me that our faith may not fail and to his return someday to set all things right including everything that's wrong in our hearts that wants to talk about how great we are.